This is episode 17 of the Aspen Entrepreneurs podcast featuring Amory Lovins, chief scientist and co-founder of the Rocky Mountain Institute. This episode is hosted by Brad Feld, partner at Foundry Group and co-founder of Techstars. This podcast was recorded in front of a packed house at CoVenture, a co-working space in downtown Carbondale, Colorado. More information about CoVenture at coventure.io. Now enjoy the episode. Thanks, Dave, and thanks, everybody, for coming. I'm Brad Feld. For those of you that don't know me, I'm a partner in a venture capital firm called Foundry Group, which invests in tech companies around the country. I'm also a co-founder of Techstars, uh, which is a worldwide network that helps entrepreneurs succeed. Uh, we invest in about 500 companies each year around the world through the various programs we run. And I've also uh, written a number of books about entrepreneurship. And I split my time mostly between uh, Boulder and Aspen at this point. So it's a real delight to start to become part of this community over the last couple of years. Tonight's uh, all about Amory. And I think what we'll do is about maybe a little bit over half an hour of Q&A from me. Uh, and then we're going to open it up for questions for the last 15 minutes or so for you all. So if you have questions, tuck them away uh, and we'll sort of go wherever you, we want to go. But I want to start with uh, going back in time. I personally love origin stories, so I, I love the dynamic of having to rewind the clock and, let's say, go back in time 50 years. So 50 years ago would have been 1969. If my math is mostly correct, you would have been in your early 20s. And What were you doing and what were you thinking sort of at that point, at the very beginning of what it has been a pretty remarkable journey over the last 50 years? Well, the previous year... I'd read my first professional paper on climate change, um, which was obviously going to be a big deal. And let's see, 69. So, oh, that was an interesting year. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, in 67, after a year at Harvard and a year off for some knee repairs and a, another year at Harvard, I dropped out of Harvard because they wanted me to specialize too much and transferred to Maudlin College, Oxford as a grad student. And uh, by 69, two years later, I was running out of money again. And uh, my squash partner, Sudhir Anand, who's now economics professor at Oxford, uh, said, well, I've got this nicely paying, cushy thing called a senior scholarship of Merton College the oldest and richest one from 1264. And it's expiring this year, so they'll advertise it again. Why don't you apply? All they can do is say no. So I applied. It, by the way, the forms for such things in England are very short. This was one page. Basically said, you know, name, rank, and serial number, a paragraph on why you want to come here, uh, and the names of three references. So halfway through the shortlist interview, I discovered I was being interviewed for a much more exalted postdoc thing called a junior research fellowship, which makes you a don, so it's like faculty. And it happened that th that used the same form, but there was no place to check which one you were applying for. <laughs> so they didn't know what to do with a grad student with no first degree, so they put me in that bin, and I got that. So anyway... That was a pretty exciting year. A, a little bit of being at the right place at the right time, as well as just yeah. taking some initiative. All right, well, let's keep going back in time a little bit as we get this started, which is go back another decade. So now you're, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. 59. Right. What, what were yeah. you thinking about then yes. as a preteen? <laughs> well, let's see. I was a classic nerd. And 59, so I was in junior high, so I was class of 64 in high school. In eighth, seventh grade? Yeah. So Everybody I was, remembers being in seventh grade, right? I was doing a lot of uh, music, and then in high school later I would get into classics and math, and then in college, linguistics, some law, a little medicine, and all, all through a track in physical science. And then after that, a lot of mountain photography. Uh, 
And then after that, I started to diversify because in our line of work, you need to pick up a couple of new disciplines a year and you never know what they're going to be. But if you do this for 30 or 40 years, everything reminds you of something. But anyway, I was interested in everything. And let's see, so at age 12, I was about eight years having past having read everything in the house, which was starting with the Britannica, because uh, <clears throat> I was sick a lot and uh, therefore at home a lot. Turned out I didn't have any gamma globulin, and at age nine or 10, we had just discovered that. Nobody knew what to do about it. It was a new thing in the literature, so they injected some, and I started making it. Been real healthy ever since. Yeah. Well, good excuse to read the encyclopedia. So you wrote a, a seminal paper, one of your very first paper on climate change was sort of the beginning of a long arc. And if we sort of wind forward the well, clock. Well, I've written a lot of other stuff before that. I mean, my, my first peer-reviewed paper was in 65, Journal of Chemical Physics. And what was that one on? Uh, something like anomalous splitting of a Fluorine 19 nuclear magnetic resonance absorption in cobalt 2 dope sodium fluoride. Super accessible vessels. to the common reader. Yeah. So, so I have in my head, I was born in 1965, I have in my head that 1973 was kind of a big deal. Yeah. Uh, what happened? Oh, uh, well, let me back up a step. In 71, after a couple of years as a Don and Merton, I finally decided what I wanted to do my doctorate in was energy. And the University of Oxford said, uh, energy, what's that? It's not an academic subject, is it? We haven't a chair in it, pick a real subject. And it was obvious to me that energy was about to be a really big problem and I needed to go work on it because it was kind of a master key for unlocking uh, a lot of other problems or for those that were not very similar like water but had common elements it would give us good hints about how to deal with those. So when they said I couldn't study energy at Oxford uh, I said well sorry I think I really need to go do it anyway so I'll just resign the fellowship and move to London and do that so I did and have been real busy ever since, particularly starting in 73 when uh, the Arab oil embargo disrupted the world economy pretty robustly. And uh, then Shell called up and, and said, uh, we were just talking to Dennis Gabor, the Nobel physicist who invented holography, asking him, whom should we talk to? And he said, well, I just met this young American that has interesting ideas about energy. I think you should talk to him. So they did. And then in 75, the soft energy path graph took shape on a Shell Group planning blackboard in London. In 76, this major paper came out in Foreign Affairs, something like 19th draft. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stories about how it got in there. And, you know, the funny way these things work, it was, so it's in a, the journal that was kind of in the bosom of the establishment, edited by Bill Bundy, whose wife Mary was Dean Acheson's daughter and had begged him to publish it. And there's a lot of backstory around that. But also in that issue, an Israeli diplomat published a paper in which somebody made a mistake in an accompanying map that the magazine had prepared. There was some funny thing about where a label was on some territory, and this was taken as a political statement by Israel. So all the diplomats uh, flocked to read that issue, and then they ran into my paper, which was the first energy paper they'd ever published or been sent. That's how you know, out of bounds the subject it was. So this started to get around. This was in the early days of Xerox machines. So a lot of electrons got inconvenienced as people made physical copies. That's all you could do in those days and mailed them with you know, postage stamps. 
and it was soon the most reprinted issue in the history of foreign affairs. And then after a bit of a slow burn on a fuse, the energy industries published three dozen critiques of it because it really upset them and endangered their narrative. At that time, everybody knew that business as usual in energy wouldn't work. It was too slow, too expensive, too disagreeable. But nobody had articulated a coherent alternative story, which the article did. And as a lot of people said, hey, actually, this looks really interesting, and it may make sense, there was this furious counter-volley. And uh, I then spent a year writing 36 tedious responses to fatuous critiques. They're all assembled in a fine print, four-inch thick congressional hearing record by uh, Senator Gaylord Nelson's Small Business Committee. And it's quite astonishing to reread those and see what people were saying in those days. Like if, if you try to decouple energy use from its frenetic embrace with GDP growth, we're all back to caves and candles. They really said that sort of thing. But anyway, after the dust had settled for a year or so, David Sternlight, the much respected chief economist of Atlantic Richfield, said, well, if Amory got it only half right, that's better performance than I've seen from the rest of them. Then things kind of settled down over the next few years. Many of the companies that had strongly criticized the work started hiring us to tell them how to get into the business, and now they're doing well. Was there anything, as you think about this kind of, sounds like about a two-year journey from the first paper in Foreign Affairs being published, the critiques coming back, the response to the critiques, you know, sort of that dynamic. Was there anything in the critiques, uh, other than all the fatuous information, that was useful? Like, was there anything in the feedback that stimulated any new thinking on your part? I think I'd pretty well covered the technical angles, but it was quite an education in Kuhn's thesis about paradigms and how people think in herds. They get set ways of stating a problem and viewing a problem and thinking what they could do about it. And uh, it was the beginning of a many decades education in how to help people think differently rearrange their mental furniture, regain beginner's mind or child mind or original mind in which you, you let go of preconceptions and assumptions and just look at what is and see it in a different way. You know the, the old story of Nanin, the Zen master? I'll tell it. Maybe some people well, don't. Well, was was visited one day by an imperious visitor. Accounts differ whether it was a government official or a business leader who insisted on being taught Zen. So Nanin smiled and poured tea and kept on pouring until it overflowed the cup onto the table, onto the visitor's robes. The visitor became quite agitated, said, stop, stop, no more will go in. Can't you see? It's full. So Nanin stopped pouring and, and said, well, you come here asking to learn Zen, but you are full of your own assumptions and preconceptions can you learn something new unless you have first emptied your cup? I'll pause there for a second because that's a good one. Um, especially now if you time travel forward to today and you think about the world today around information and communicating information, either new ideas that you're trying to help people understand how to think about or the resistance of, you know, whether it's an establishment or people who are antithetical to the ideas you have. And, you know, the work that you've done and, and the sort of the, the, the breadth of the impact that you have through RMI and through other things is quite broad, but there's still an enormous amount of, I would say, uh, counter-narrative, for lack yeah. of a better phrase, against it. Forty years later or so, how has the how has the, how have things changed in that process? Not the specific details of it, but you know, the tedious process of xeroxing things and mailing them, 
to give critique to people can now be done online with Twitter and you know yeah. 100 characters. So how, well, how, is a, how is a real thinker that's trying to drive some of these things forward, have you had to adjust? Well, the, the eternal verity is, is what my old mentor, Edwin Land, inventor, taught me, that people who seem to have had a new idea have often just stopped having an old idea. And that's the hard part. And the main difference now is that instead of information coming from somebody you know and may have a relationship of trust or... or uh, otherwise with, uh, information bombards you from all sides and you have no idea where it came from, whether it's deliberately false, which a lot of it is. Uh, so I think it's actually harder now to discern what might be true and you need much more sensitive antennae about where the information come fr came from and who might have been motivated to create it. Uh, I deal with this stuff all the time. We, we had uh, just this morning, some of my colleagues and I were discussing a, a consulting report from a major house uh, about how many trillion dollars it would cost to go all renewable. Well, yeah, if you make certain really stupid assumptions, you can reach that result, but it's nothing a market would ever do. Uh, and. Uh, I don't know whether they don't know any better or thought they'd make more money by saying that and just made stuff up or what, but fortunately there's better information and a lot of our ungrateful task is to try to steer people in a more discerning direction and ask the right questions. That's always the hard part. You know, once you get the question right, the answer is self-evident. As a, as a kid, you know, when we traveled back in time to when you were 10, you were a voracious reader. So uh, I am. You're, you still are. What do you read? <sighs> well, there's thousands of books in my library, and I've read probably three quarters of them, written some. But uh, the, I don't get to read uh, as much as I would like. I currently have two meters of unread books in a stack, and it keeps to getting bigger. Uh, but I want to take more time to read, and uh, it's it's not restricted by discipline. I work in 20-odd well, disciplines. Cate and categorically, like, you know, are... Probably uh, half of it's technical. Okay, so take the technical stuff out. Yeah. You know, do you like uh, Victorian novels? Do you like science fiction? Do you like biography? Like, what, what stimulates new thoughts for you or different kinds of thinking for you? Well, that you things, sort of things I don't know much about. Uh, so that's more valuable. And uh, then I can get confused on a higher level. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I read, I have read in those categories, but. Uh, <clears throat> I'm reading some some medical stuff and uh, occasionally political, not very often. Um, I need to read uh, Madeleine Albright's new book on fascism, I'm told. It's quite good. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I read whatever looks interesting at the time and uh, it uh, the the stack just keeps growing, but I, I have something I refer to as the infinite pile of unread books. It's and not infinite. Yeah, well, I've discovered that with a Kindle, it can be. <laughs> Probably not, but approximate. It's approximately infinite. Though. It feels infinite. Uh, yeah, no, I actually like the mushed up trees versions. So. Uh, the reason I asked about the reading is uh, I'm a, I'm a, I've written seven books. You've written 30-something books. 31, yeah. 31 books. That's a lot of books to write. Yeah, and 640 papers, and I'm working on six more this week. So, you know, one of the things I've always found as, as somebody who is uh, a writer is that reading is very helpful to me in terms of my writing even if I'm reading about stuff that has nothing to do with what I'm writing. Oh, especially, yeah, and then it, then you make new neural connections, you learn new stuff, it's, uh, or you unlearn old stuff, which is more important. <coughs> but uh, 
actually the best thing for my English prose style was uh, the spoof law cases of A.P. Herbert, Sir Alan Herbert, who was the member of parliament for Oxford when the Oxford and Cambridge had their own MPs. And uh, it was very clear lapidary Victorian prose, like if parliament does not mean what it said, it must say so, or there is no precedent for anything until it is done for the first time. <laughs> so, how many people here write? Write a blog, write books, write the articles? The rest of you know who you are. Okay, yeah, yeah, more than half the group. Any advice given the prolific amount of stuff you've written over your career? Any tricks, any tips, any hints? Well, in the old days, writing a book would typically mean retyping it on a manual typewriter. You know those things with a, with a carriage return lever? A lot of young people have never seen one. They don't know what that means. Uh, and you'd edit it as you wrote it, uh, and you'd type this book maybe 12 times. Uh, it's a lot easier now. Word processing, I think, greatly improves the quality of my writing, not just productivity. Uh, but I would urge you to imagine you're talking to somebody and write down the story you're telling them and have in mind clearly who that person is and what will best communicate what you're trying to say and then maybe you'll figure out how to say it clearly because this imaginary person in front of you will start to look rather puzzled. Yeah, I didn't get that part, you lost me on that curve. Uh, and uh, it, so you, you have to have audience very clearly in mind. If you just try writing something in the abstract, nobody is likely to get much out of it or like it very well. So let's, let's shift towards RMI. Mm -hmm. when, when I think about you and what I've read about you and the, the little bit of history I know, I think of RMI as a very significant entrepreneurial endeavor of yours. Um, go back to the beginning, again, the origin story. What was the, the inspiration for it? Oh. Who were the people around it at the beginning? What was the first year of that like? Well, in April 82, uh, my then wife Hunter and I were going, were driving our little Nissan pickup <clears throat> across the country to teach at Dartmouth for the spring term. And uh, talking as we went about how we would shape our, our joint efforts, uh, we'd been living in England, I'd been living there 14 years, so four in Oxford, 10 in London, and in the last two or three of those, uh, we got married and she moved to England, but being a California cactus, she didn't much like the, the climate, so we were thinking about uh, when to move back and try to build a nest in which we could get a handful of colleagues and be more effective than just mom and pop. And I, we couldn't think at the time of a private sector or government outfit that we would really enjoy working for, so that left the alternative of starting something, probably a nonprofit, so we could have a, a social purpose and a long view. But that didn't stop us from being entrepreneurial. And indeed, to jump ahead, uh, when I last looked five years ago, Rocky Mountain Institute had had 16 revenue models, 14 of them entrepreneurial, all of them worked, most of them were and are still in play, and now there's a bunch more, We're probably upwards of 20. Uh, and uh, Hunter had been running uh, the operations for Andy Lipkus's outfit, uh, California Conservation Project, also known as Tree People in LA. So she knew something about running a small nonprofit. Uh, so she said, well, I'll do the administrivia, you do the research and quality control. So in April 82, we sent a, a little form to the IRS and they 
said, okay, you're a nonprofit. Uh, and then we started recruiting a few people as we started building what's now the banana farm in Old Snowmass. Crop number 76 just emerged. Massive solar bananas, no heating system, cheaper to build that way. Uh, in fact, at the moment, we've got, let's see, coffee beans, little guavas and papayas, babacos, which are a kind of natural papaya hybrid, uh, limes, lemons, hmm, bananas, some other stuff. There's over 100 kinds of higher plants in there. Uh, <clears throat> that was all in the future. But anyway, we, we set up this little outfit and nurtured it while building the house, which took uh, May 82 to January 84. And uh, for a long time, RMI had about 10 or 15 people. We designed one end of the building that we would make available as its headquarters. We designed it for 12 people when we had three, and soon it had 21, which was getting pretty crowded. And then we started to spill over into the neighborhood, ended up at the old Windstar Foundation building down the road when we helped Windstar Foundation save that because it hadn't been properly protected, wrapped it in thick layers of conservation easements. Uh, and uh, eventually, after John Denver died, uh, the uh, Windstar Foundation uh, uh, f failed and was, was dissolved, and we ended up running the Windstar Land Conservancy we'd set up together to protect that land. And then we had the opportunity to build the new office in Basalt, just one block down Valley of the middle of town, and uh, moved into that December 2015. and. Now there's about 40 or 50 people there, but RMI has 230, and soon probably 300. So uh, it's getting big and complicated and much more effective than I would ever have dreamed was possible. How did, how did you end up in Snowmass in the first place? Oh, very deliberately. We had a list of 50-odd criteria for where we would settle down. Uh, and that has served us well, and we came up with a list of places that might fit and said, well, let's try each one for six months if, if we like it that long. And actually, we found an affordable piece of land, uh, fairly low-value land to build on at Old Snowmass on the last day of the six-month search. What were the other cities that you spent some chunks of time in? Well, we, we thought about the Bay Area, but to avoid being encroached on by spreading urbanization, we'd have to be north of the Russian River, and then the, the logistics get more awkward. And uh, we looked at Santa Fe, uh, which at the time didn't even have regular air service, which is odd for a capital, uh, and uh, a few other places. Uh, my parents, when they retired, got a little trailer and went around living in each, each of several places for six months to decide which they liked to settle down in, which they then did. And they both lived in 97, so. Uh, Hunter had gone to CRMS. I'd been going to Aspen Institute meetings starting in the early 70s, so we both thought that this valley had a unique set of, of features that fitted our criteria quite well. So we're happy that worked out, and I think the original logic has served us well. So go back to the 15 or 20 different business models that you've talked about. Um, maybe talk about two or three of the projects that became commercialized that you're most proud of, that you feel like whether they had direct or indirect influence on uh, new innovation. And, and maybe just sort of go deep on one of them about how it came together. Well, <coughs> maybe our, well, we let's see, our, our first, um, Spinoff was uh, Sardo's Rising Sun Enterprises, the, the leading uh, lighting efficiency outfit in the Basalt Business Center. That's still going, uh, Robert Sardinsky. Um, and uh, let's see, Ted Flanagan tried a spinoff that didn't work, but we hatched a subscription service that 
became the leading technical and strategic information source for utilities and major customers on electric efficiency and then later on distributed generation. So we spun that off and uh, it ended up getting sold for 17 million to the Financial Times Group. <clears throat> and after an unsuccessful resale to Platts, the management bought it back out and it's going fine in Boulder 20 odd years later with 100 odd people. Uh, and that has, <clears throat> I think, really moved the electricity revolution ahead quite a lot. Um, we had two automotive spin-offs, uh, one led by uh, John Fox Rubin and Dave Kramer, who is now the head of composites for Apple, and that was in uh, Glenwood in a couple of places and developed a technology that we then ended up selling to a tier one supplier in Germany for making complex automotive or aerospace parts very rapidly at competitive cost. You can do a two by two meter part in one minute. Uh, so that's still the best technology in that field. And I think we'll realize its commercial potential even though the, the company uh, mismanaged one risk and went under. Uh, and uh, then there was a second automotive spinoff uh, that uh, was called Bright Automotive. Uh, so its car was, of course, the bright idea. It was a aluminum-intensive hybrid commercial van, roughly 100 miles a gallon, and uh, road tested in April lot nine. It had supply chain customers, manufacturing site, the management team that had brought, I think it was 43 advanced technology vehicles to market, which is more than all other auto startups of that period put together. And eventually the Department of Energy killed it, we'll never know why. Um, but the IP was bought out and I understand there are several makers now with production intent. Uh, and the, the hypercar work uh, that turned into Fiberforge, the composites company, uh, had a big influence. We were told by our friends at Honda and Toyota that our strategy behind that company enabled them to get the production capital they needed to bring hybrids like the Prius to market a decade early. And uh, I think it really had a lot to do with both the ultra lighting and or light weighting and the uh, electrification revolutions that are driving the automotive industry now. The uh, uh, the the way we started that company was rather interesting. Uh, I thought about hypercars in '91, and that's a combination of very light and slippery cars that don't take much energy to move them, maybe two or three times less than normal, plus electric traction, which at the time meant hybrids. That was a really radical concept. People said it's ridiculous to have two powertrains when you just need one, and they didn't quite understand why it was advantageous to combine them, which Porsche had done in 1900, by the way, uh, before we had power electronics. And uh, <coughs> the, uh, <coughs> I, I then spent a couple of years, mainly with GM, validating the concept in the industry, but it turned out GM was not culturally ready to collaborate with anybody, particularly a small nonprofit they hadn't heard of. Uh, so my board quite properly pulled the plug and said, take this out to the industry. So we noodled about that for a while and rather liked what Linux had done. Uh, you can't beat free. And we thought it would work better if it was free than if we charged for it. So we simply put our <clears throat> several million dollars, probably four or five million worth of philanthropically funded R&D into the public domain so nobody could patent it, and then got everyone fighting over it by going around to the world's automakers, getting them worried that their competitors were going to do it first. Uh, and seven years later in 2000, uh, this had leveraged over $10 billion worth of, of industry commitments, so we've, we like that leverage, and that's been going on ever since. Uh, 
the, the, the most prevalent of our entrepreneurial business models, and there were many, many others, was to use mainly philanthropic funding, since we're a public charity, 501c3, uh, to um, create important new intellectual capital, and then uh, collaborate with powerful private sector partners. We've always worked largely with the private sector because we want to get things done, uh, to test or, or apply tests uh, break, fix, and scale what we had discovered. Uh, and <clears throat> this turned out to have a number of advantages. It would give us unrestricted revenue to do whatever we thought was a high priority. Uh, and it, it was no more work than applying for grants, sometimes simpler, uh, and a, a shorter sales cycle usually. Um, it would give us some market test of the validity and value of the information, and people were more likely to follow our advice or take it seriously if they paid for it than if we gave it to them. Uh, and that collaboration would teach us a lot. Uh, so we would, we would get important learnings uh, and better ways to tell our story. Uh, we would get teachable cases, and most importantly, we would create competitive pressure for emulation, which is how we do most of our outreach. That is, we will help early adopters in the private sector to uh, take up our ideas about advanced resource efficiency and the like, uh, which they will pursue for fun and profit. Uh, but it advances our mission uh, and uh, they get a sufficient advantage from it that if we've chosen them carefully to be feared and respected in their sector, it's likely to induce a lot more to pay attention and do the same thing. Sometimes you need two companies in each sector. In fact, that's a good idea for diversification, so it doesn't just depend on one company and then the chairman retires and things fall apart. Uh, but uh, it's been a very successful model, and in some areas, like say chip fab design or data center design, we've really been able to use that to transform the whole sector's uh, expectations. And I, I think if you look at bigger sectors like automotive and uh, electricity and green buildings, we, we could uh, point to similar effects, although notice that we're working in very complex sectors with a lot of actors and a lot of uncontrolled variables. So it's, it's always difficult to say, we did this, this thing, this output, this, that outcome, and it led to the transformation of the sector. Uh, that's possible in a restricted sector like data centers or chip fabs, but if you try to apply it to something much more complicated like buildings or electricity or cars, uh, or trucks, it's, it's harder to make, to, to draw a clear causal connection of kind of bright line like that. And in fact, if you can do that in a big complicated system, it probably means what you did wasn't very important. But I think people who know the field will recognize where our influence was felt, including in some cases knowing the parts that deliberately didn't have fingerprints on them. Is it? We've always felt it was more important to pay attention to who needs to have the idea in what circumstances so they'll do the right thing with it and preferably to think it's their idea. Uh, there, there's, as, as has been said many times, there's hardly any limit to what you can do if you're willing to give away all the credit. Two, two more questions, and then we're going to shift to a handful from the audience uh, to wrap up. So if you have questions, sort of start thinking about it. Um, let's stay on auto for a second. Uh, if you wind the clock forward 20 or 30 years, what do you think uh, history will tell us about what uh, Elon Musk and Tesla have done uh, in auto? Well, it's always a bet on the future of a particular company with a particular leader with particular attributes. Uh, <laughs> uh, and the Elon effect 
cuts both ways. Uh, no question, they're doing extraordinary things, and uh, my wife Judy drives a uh, Model 3, and it is an extraordinary car. That and the other one, which I drive is down the in the next block with a hypercar license plate, <clears throat> is a BMW i3. Those are, I think, the two cars in today's market with real engineering genius. They are extraordinary achievements. Uh, last question. Um, I, I understand that you had some recent uh, recent news about your own professional path. Oh yeah, uh, we announced last Friday uh, that uh, in November, around my 72nd birthday, uh, I'm going to be stepping down as chief scientist of RMI and as a full-time employee, and then continuing without interruption to do the same things with the same people, but as a contractor. Uh, this, is, this follows the same logic as my moving from CEO to chief scientist 12 years ago. In order to uh, stop doing stuff that wasn't as much fun and, and, or as important or that I wasn't all that good at, like running the company, and instead focus on the things that I could do with unique advantage and, and impact. Uh, well, as RMI has gotten bigger, it's gotten more complex uh, with a lot of metabolic activities. There are many moving parts and people running around with wrenches and oil cans, but that isn't what I should be doing. And that complexity and size and scale are enabling us to do extraordinary things. So I'm, I'm very proud of, of that, but it means that I need to re-examine again how I can work most productively for the mission. And it's, it's become clear to me over the past few years that I need, therefore, to make the same transition again to focus on the work and to shed all of the administrative and process responsibilities uh, and just focus on essence. One of our donors, when I conveyed this news a few days ago, said, yeah, it's like what I did when I was 70. It's not about not working. It's about not rushing, but calmly focusing on the wizard class stuff that, that you alone can do. And I think that makes perfect sense, and 100% of our donors have said the same thing. So I, I hope as each of you goes through various stages in your career arc, you'll be continuously examining what's the most effective uh, and fulfilling way for you to work to do what you think is important. So I'm very pleased about this, particularly because uh, Judy last week uh, moved her uh, studio, she's a master printmaker and fine art landscape photographer, from her studio house 10 minutes up the road into our house. And it's now in the library of the banana farm where we hatched the institute for its first 18 years. So it's now a working room again and she'll work downstairs and I'm working upstairs uh, in that end of the building looking out at the banana jungle. And uh, it's a wonderful way to work and our commute is 10 meters across the jungle, not 10 minutes in the hypercar. And uh, we'll get to see a lot more of each other. So already this is working out very well. Awesome. Okay, let's do a couple of questions. I saw you pop your hand up right away. So why don't you go first? Just uh, talk loud. Thanks. I'm not representing the USGBC now. I really represent business climate leaders, which is part of Citizens Climate Lobby. Um, your buddy, Paul Hawking and many others, including Dr. James Hansen, Michael Mann, climate scientist from Penn State, and thousands of economists all agree on one thing, to accelerate the kinds of things we all need to accelerate. And if we believe that the IPCC is correct, we have about a decade to really get on track with deep decarbonization. We're not gonna get to the proliferation of the kinds of technologies that we really need and want at the scale and speed while ignoring the elephant in the room. And you said two things that completely corroborate and help inform my communication on this. People think it hurts, and people who have new ideas sometimes really have just stopped having old ideas. And so I wonder if you could comment, and anybody in the room when you're done, about the number of policies in Congress. I represent one, which happens to be the first bipartisan climate bill in a decade. 
to put a price on carbon. And I agree with most economists that you will never see a shift in capital from market actors at the scale needed while allowing dirty energy to be the cheapest. So you agree with that, and would you endorse something like that? Well, I've always endorsed proper carbon pricing. The right number is definitely not zero. It's a rather substantial number, whatever it is. Um, and you can choose whether to get there with a cap-and-trade system or a tax. It depends on whether you want certainty in quantity or price. Either system can be gamed. Uh, either can work well. However, uh, carbon pricing although valuable and important, and I'm all in favor of it, is not sufficient. If you don't also bust barriers to responding to price, not much will happen. And it is not actually essential, even though I love to see it. One way we know that is that in 2011, we did a very detailed analysis, uh, tens of analyst years, four or five million dollars worth of effort, called Reinventing Fire. Uh, showing how to triple efficiency and quintuple renewables by 2050 in the United States. So you'd get to 2050 with a 2.6-fold bigger economy than 2010. That's the official assumption. We adopted it. Uh, using no oil, no coal, no nuclear, third less gas, paying $5 trillion less, assuming no carbon pricing and no other externalities counted. We, value them all at zero, a conservatively low number. And we found this would require no new inventions beyond 2010 state of the shelf, and it would require no acts of Congress, but could be led by business for profit, because dirty energy is not cheaper anymore. Uh, and uh, that's without carbon pricing. Obviously, if you had carbon pricing, it would go even faster and better. Uh, but. I don't agree with those who say that this is essential and we have to wait for it to happen in Congress or, or nothing else will happen. Uh, bear in mind also, most multinational companies already price or shadow price carbon. There are large chunks of the world that price carbon, in, including an area of China bigger than Europe, and soon all of China, and including all of Europe. So they, anybody that operates internationally has to count that, and if they don't, they're bearing a lot of risk they don't need to. In the back, and then you're next. Um, thanks, Aaron. We've seen uh, considerable uh, economies of scale from renewable energy. So, you know, 20 years ago, photovoltaics were very expensive. Manufacturing efficiencies have driven the price down. Um, so they're the technology is much more affordable. What do you think it will take to uh, have mass acceptance on both the part of the public and most importantly on the part of political and business leaders to get this revolution jump-started and kick things off? Uh, I think that already happened in most of the country, actually. There are always some, you know, nimbyism issues somewhere, but uh, just our business, uh, let's see, renewable energy, Buyers Alliance, so we just changed the name, so I have to think what REBA means. It was the Business Renewables Council. Is that her? Too many acronyms. Uh, those, those several hundred companies last year bought eight and a half gigawatts of renewables through power purchase agreements. Something like 98% of those deals in the country were from REBA members. Uh, and. Uh, they're doing it to get cheaper energy, constant price energy, better reputation, better reliability and resilience. Uh, and then we also have a for-profit uh, partial subsidiary called BlackBerry Energy, so that if you want to be able to say, our data center runs on our wind farm rather than on a power purchase agreement, uh, then you can do that too and we'll help put the pieces together. Uh, I, uh, I think the revolution's gone a lot further than you might suppose. How many of you would, would guess that, say, a third of the uh, net additions of generating capacity added in the world each of the past two years have been renewable? 
one. How about half? How about two-thirds? The actual number is 64%. They've taken over about two-thirds of the market because they have a great business case. End of story. They'll take the other third pretty quickly. John? Okay, the rest of you again know who you are. So that's an interesting story. And bear in mind, we're not just talking about the point you made, sir, about uh, module prices, but about whole system costs and prices. My colleague, uh, Joseph Goodman, has led three successive industry collaborations, each of which has cut photovoltaic system cost roughly in half. So that's a factor eight when you get through. So they're now confident that they can do community scale, tenth to several megawatt scale, ground mount photovoltaic systems unsubsidized for two or two and a half cents a kilowatt hour, feeding directly into the local distribution system without needing transmission. And you can actually buy that hardware made that way in Australia, and there are already some orders coming up in Texas. I think they'll all compete in different places. They'll adopt different mixes. I think it's going to grow pretty fast, particularly given the transmission's the hardest thing to build, and also where 98 or 99 percent of the failures originates in the grid. So the closer the supply is to you, ideally on your roof, the more resilient your supply is, especially if it's wired to work with or without the grid, which ours is, thanks to. Ken Olson's shop in Carbondale. Uh, we've done several workarounds over the years, and now that we have IEEE standard 1547, you can do that automatically with any smart inverter. Do you see the blockchain playing a role in terms of the grid? In terms of Very much, and in fact, one of our entrepreneurial activities is a Swiss foundation called Energy Web Foundation. Foundations are a little different in Switzerland than elsewhere. This, this is has elements of a for-profit as well. Uh, and uh, they have released now in April or May, I believe, the first uh, open source, open architecture blockchain application for energy, which lets you trace where your electrons came from and how they were produced. Uh, and we think within a few years that architecture will permit very fast, efficient, cheap, secure transactions that can balance grids and uh, clear markets from the bottom up, not from the top down. And that will indeed be revolutionary. It'll, it'll help distribute intelligence all through the grid rather than having a dispatcher sit in some place and tell the electrons where to go. Not over yet, thank you. What do you think is the most effective thing RMI does or can do, and what does the organization need to make that happen? We have, I think it's 17 now major areas of activity. The majority of our work is now international. We have a couple of dozen people in Beijing. There's an affiliated organization in Delhi. We're, we've done a lot of African and Caribbean and Pacific Island work. We're scouting Southeast Asia to see how we can help. Uh, so if you, if you go on our website, rmi.org, you'll find a lot of useful material. Uh, the last year's annual report is still a good place to start, and there will be a new one out shortly, uh, and you'll see a lot of update because there, we're always hatching new stuff. Uh, and we need uh, money, uh, good advice and contacts, good ideas, uh, and good people. We've been absolutely blessed with extraordinary people. Uh, we recently had a review meeting, we do every year or less, on all of our activities and couldn't quite believe the 200 people were doing that much that well. In fact, I, I couldn't think of an outfit that would do all that with a thousand people. So that gives you an idea of the quality we've 
been fortunate to attract. Uh, and uh, we would very much welcome your financial support as well. Last question, Dr. Williams. Do you have your eyes on any ways of storing renewable energy? Uh, liquid sodium batteries, anything, any new up-and-coming technology to take the energy when it's produced and we have it for when we do not have energy being produced? Let me unpack that a little bit. Uh, it is quite true that photovoltaics and wind, although not other renewables, which are quite important, uh, are, are uh, subject to large fluctuations according to weather and the state of the Earth's rotation and such. Uh, those variations are actually pr very predictable, or at least as predictable as electricity demand. Uh, Storage of bulk storage of electricity is one way to deal with that. It's currently the costliest of 10 ways. The others start on the demand side with efficient and timely use. It turns out, for example, in Texas in the summer, just the eight categories of demand response, unobtrusively flexible timing of some demands, uh, can more than eliminate the so-called duck curve of steeply ramping uh, uh, non-photovoltaic power demand as the PVs fade in the late afternoon, people come home and turn stuff on. And it can cut the non-renewable capacity by a quarter and raise the value of the renewables by a third and it pays back in about five months. So that resource is a lot bigger than had been thought, maybe three times bigger. There are improvements in the renewable system itself by diversification by type and location, by constructing synthetic portfolios of anti-correlated wind sites, for example, or better correlating or and, and connecting contractually solar and wind. They're often being co-produced now at the same sites or similar sites and sometimes with storage. And that's beating gas hands down in the hippie uh, uh, haven of Oklahoma, that's the latest big commercial deal. Uh, you can better forecast the output of variable renewables. You can uh, uh, integrate them with dispatchable renewables, which are big and important, and with dispatchable non-renewables, particularly industrial cogeneration, which you have to keep running anyway to provide the process heat. Uh, you can do distributed storage of electricity that's worth buying anyway, like in your car, by doing smart bidirectional charging. You can do distributed storage of heat, which is a lot cheaper to store than electricity, heat or cooth. Uh, there's a few others, and there's also hydrogen, which I can't draw on a supply curve like the others because the quantity is indeterminate. But when you add up those nine, well, eight methods other than bulk storage and other than fossil fuel backup, uh, they are way more than we need to balance the grid. In fact, we showed years ago, and there's a YouTube online about this. If you, if you Google Lovin's storage myth, you'll find it, uh, uh, showing that Texas, a difficult case, an isolated grid, nasty climate, and uh, no big hydro, can go 100% renewable electricity with excellent economics and no bulk storage. So I, I'm not saying battery storage isn't important. It is actually behind the meter, often cost-effective right now, meaning that benefits exceed costs. That doesn't, however, mean it's the cheapest way to get those benefits. And if you go to a battery conference, the arguments are all about my battery's better than your battery, but hardly anyone talks about what batteries generically have to beat, and there's formidable competition with non-storage solutions. So I hope that helps broaden your question a bit. And yes, there are exciting new types of batteries emerging. We do not need a storage miracle, but several seem to be well on the way. So let's give uh, Amory a big round of applause. Thanks. Uh
Thanks for being part of this tonight and sharing a little bit of yourself with everybody. My pleasure, and, and it's a delight uh, to see this outfit going. And I, I hope, by the way, if any of you have not done so, that you're hooked up with, with uh, Alice Laird's uh, clear outfit. A wonderful support if you're thinking of doing efficiency or renewables, and they're, they're coordinating that now on a three-county basis. Uh, they set up and run the, the Garfield County clean energy effort. They're putting in charging stations for electric vehicles. A lot of great work, uh, and I, th I think you'll find them a wonderful resource for this community. And uh, also thanks to you all for coming and being part of this. Really, really appreciate the energy and attendance, and thanks to Dave and gang, Tyler, et cetera, for putting this together.